You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon Podcast. Now, I have, this was one of the first things that I think that a pastor in 2000, in, 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 in the era that we're living in, 2022 today, one of the first places that the pastor ought to go to if he's going to teach from Scripture. And it's only taking me seven and a half plus years to get to it. Amen. But it's actually been on my list to do for a long time. So we're going to dive in. So how many of you help me dive in? Uh, I, uh, I don't know how long this is going to take. For those that don't know why everybody is laughing, is because I, I have been known to do longer series than you may see at other places. Um, I, I believe in long series, not for the sake of them being long, but you cannot cheat the Word of God. And so some things, it just takes a while to get through. So I promise that I will not be any shorter than 14 weeks. I just want you to know that. Okay, so now that we have that done. Amen. But the Word of God is great. You never get tired of the Word of God. Most of them had a desire to live for God, but they were doing it all wrong. I want you to throw up that, that, that map, if you will, on the screen so that everybody can sort of see here because we do want to set uh, uh, a little bit of the setting. And I am going to have... Uh, we're going to send out, we'll post in the private group, and I'll email out um, a video that I recommend on your own time, about 45 minutes or so for you to watch. This sort of gives you a historical context of uh, the city of Corinth, and I think it is vital and helpful when you understand the surrounding uh, culture and makeup of the church that was taking place there and the ensuing problems that they have and what Paul was living in and then later addressing again. It's going to help you understand it a little bit more. And so uh, I'll have Kate help us send that out later on. But if you look here uh, at this map where the city of Corinth is, of course, this is, this is uh, what we would know now as Greece. So the Greek empire had come, had, had uh, greatly impacted the ancient world, and uh, in, in a lot of ways modernized it. And then the Romans, Romans come and conquer that. And... Uh, increased travel through their roads and everything else. But if you see where Corinth is situated, it's a, a, a very strategically located place. So the time of this writing is somewhere around uh, AD 55, let's say, somewhere in there. We don't know exactly, but that's, that's about the target. And it's believed that Paul writes this while he is at Ephesus, establishing the church there, the church there that he later would turn over to uh, uh, his son in the gospel, Timothy, and Timothy would pass there. While he's at Ephesus, um, he writes this epistle back to the Corinthian church. And we'll, we'll, we'll sort of set that up. But, but on Paul's missionary journeys, uh, uh, he makes a travel and he comes and visits this, uh, this city, Corinth, on his second missionary journey. He had a vision, God, uh, uh, he has a vision uh, a dream uh, where there's a man from Macedonia calling for him to come preach the gospel, and he literally is drawn to this area. Now, why did Paul need 
a supernatural calling like this vision that he has of the Macedonian man calling him to come to Corinth. Well, you'll understand that here in a little bit. It was a cultural melting pot. Northern Greece and Southern Greece are connected by this tiny little isthmus, like an island, kind of four miles wide. And if you're going to travel anywhere, you have to pass through this point. But beyond foot travel, sea travel, as they would travel through the Mediterranean from everywhere on the east, Israel, Turkey, over there, all that that, that we now know would come around, the waters around the, the southern part of Greece in that day were known to be so severe that they would come to the port at, on the east side of Corinth and they would unload their ships. They would carry the cargo four miles to the other port. And if they had no other ship waiting on the other side, and a lot of times they would, they would put it then in another ship and continue on. If they had no other ship on the other side, they would leave half the crew and take a select number of crew and make the dangerous trek around to the other side of the port where they would then pick everything up and then they would continue on uh, westward to what we would know as the other parts of, of, of Western Europe. Often they would do this. So this was this massive place coming together. So you had people from all over the known world then. Everybody was coming together. With that high traffic, they were very rich in, in economics. Sometimes they were even known if the boats were, were, were small enough to actually take the boats and take them on rails or skids and travel them across the four-mile area to get it there. Because of all that, it was, it was a high place of economics. Uh, Corinthian bronze was one of the most famous things around that era. It said that Solomon used uh, two of the pillars there were covered in Corinthian bronze. They were high in manufacture. It was this place where you had all these different cultures coming because of the traffic there. It was, it was, they, they had manufacturing, trade, all of this stuff was wealthy. They had no less than, I think it's 27, 26 shrines and temples at the city of Corinth. It was Rome, ruled by Rome at this time, and so it's very pagan in nature. The biggest temple of that place was, of course, the temple of Apollo. Uh, and it's interesting that when Paul leaves the revival after a year and a half there, he leaves a man by the name of Apollos to be the pastor of the church, which tells of the revival of the conversion. Man that was named after a pagan god now becomes the pastor of the church there. But the second temple, the second largest temple there was the temple of Aphrodite. It's set over on the high rise. It, it also made it that, that the, the landscape made it an incredible defensive fortress. And one of the highest points there was the temple of Aphrodite. And uh, if, if you don't know, it was a, 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 a goddess of Aphrodite. It was a very sexually immoral thing. And the way you would worship at the temple was you literally would go and involve yourself in sexual immorality. And this is, this is not in the back alley. This is the highest point of the city. So no matter where you're at, you can see this. Some have said that there were as many as 1,000 prostitutes, male and female, that were always 
working at the temple of Aphrodite. So this area, though it's, it's, it's incredibly rich, it is rich in economics, it's, it's a cosmopolitan melting pot. People are coming from all over the world. You have access to all kinds of stuff. You can only imagine, not only its trade, but, but all kinds of things. And here, Greek empire, now Roman empire, and yet they retained all of this stuff. And now you've got the sexual immorality in a way that, is not normally seen anywhere else. There were also Jews living there. There was also synagogues there. There was other people there. It was so bad, if you will, that Paul needed a dream to get him there. And when he got there and he walked through the city, he's thinking, I don't know. We're probably not going to start a church here. And God had to send him another vision and say, Paul, I have much people in this city. And you can read about that story in the book of Acts where Paul comes and he's ready to go, but God gives him a vision and speaks to him plainly and says, Paul, don't write this off. Even the apostle Paul needed a word from God, not just one, but two to be convinced that there was a revival in the city of Corinth. So on his second missionary journey, as he's making his way around, and he's going there, he comes to the city of Corinth, there he's had, after walking around, God gives him this vision, he remains and he stays for a year and a half. And now he has, on his missionary journey with Silas, he's picked up Timothy, Timothy's with him, he comes to Corinth, and there he meets Aquila and Priscilla and Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue there. They walk into the synagogue, and that's where he starts his ministry. They get kicked out of that, but Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, is saved, is converted, is baptized, filled with the Holy Ghost. And from there, a great revival takes place, and Paul stays for a year and a half, and in that year and a half, all kinds of converts were made. We know later, when Paul writes from Corinth, he writes the book uh, of the epistle to the Romans, and we see then, by the people that he names and that he testifies, in the list of the people that are in company with him at the church of Corinth, there are all kinds of converts. As you read through the epistle, you know what kind of converts are in that room. And here's the amazing thing. Not only was it the idolaters and the effeminate and the homosexuals and the all kinds of sexual immoral and all of that stuff that came and were converted. Such were some of you, but you are washed. But there was also sitting on the same row, the former chief, ruler of the synagogue, the high political officer of the city was there, and in that same place you would have both the convict and the one that perhaps had sentenced him, all converted to Christianity in this revival. It was an incredible revival that takes place. And so Paul leaves and he goes on, but as he goes on, what happens They have a desire for live for God, but everything ends up a mess. It's a mess, and so it's it's not known exactly, but 
it is presumed that while he is at Ephesus after he has passed, while he is at Ephesus working to build the church there, and he spends some, someone says somewhere around three years there, that while he's there, a delegation from the church at Corinth, at the city of Corinth, come and visit him. And when they visit him, they let him know of all the problems that are going on in the church. And so Paul sits down with seemingly a heavy heart, and he begins to write what we now know as 1 Corinthians. Now, there is a reference that Paul makes in chapter 5 and verse 9 to having already written to them. And so we presume that he had previously written another letter before this, but that letter is lost. No one has any clue what happened to that. And the reference is just merely in passing. If that's the case, for whatever reason, that first letter was not seen as an epistle held uh, authoritative as Scripture, uh, although he references it, it's lost. So he's already had some interesting conversations with him, living there and knowing everything, but this presumed delegation comes and talks to him. He sits down, writes a letter, and he goes back. And it gives to us this first epistle, and the epistle is divided into two parts. And here's the two main divisions of the, the epistle, and that is this. The first part of the epistle is his reproofs or his rebukes, if you will, to the corruptions that are going on in the church. And there were some major corruptions that are going on. So the first thing Paul does when he sits down is he reproves them for some things that are going on that he's hearing. And the second part of the epistle is answers to questions that they are asking him. Questions about marriage, questions about Christian liberty, questions about uh, Christian conduct, questions about spiritual gifts, questions about the resurrection, not just the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but our resurrection, our eternal resurrection, questions about that. And so the second part of the epistle is Paul answering those questions that they have. Wouldn't it be awesome to go back to Paul's Ask Anything? Well, here we are. I give to you 1 Corinthians. This is Paul's answers to their questions that are coming. So I would, we're covering such a vast area, such a vast uh, uh, shot of stuff, if you will, that I will caution, caution you because we're covering so many topics that ironic, here's the irony of it. The topics that Paul is addressing were contentious, divisive, and they were confused over. It was a source of disagreement in the church then. So Paul writes to answer the questions, but the irony is today's modern interpretation of those same issues are contentious, divisive, and there's a lot of confusion on those sometimes. 
So while I often will cite sources and give you recommendations on things, you want to be cautious of the sources of the Bible aids and the Bible helps that you are using to work through an epistle like 1 Corinthians. I highly recommend the Apostolic Study Bible, the Premier Study Bible. Those are two Apostolic Study Bibles. Um, I, I, I would like uh, to also say that in the mainstream ones, I like the new uh, Life Application Study Bible and the ESV Study Bible because the ESV uh, attempts to not offend anyone and be more general. And uh, so a lot of times you still have to walk, watch for things and, you know, eat the meat, spit out the bones kind of thing. But uh, you can look at those kind of things. I think the most important thing is somebody's value of Scripture and are they dismissing the Scripture? Because there's a lot of incredible people that may be, let's say, sources that are excellent on Old Testament stuff, maybe Genesis commentaries, other kinds of things. But when they come here, when they get the spiritual gifts, they say, yeah, this was a problem, but we really don't, we don't have to deal with that in the church. There's, you know, these, these gifts aren't for us today. And they just sort of throw them out. Or, they, or you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and they dismiss everything he's talking about and say, well, that was just cultural, and it only applies for them. And these are people that in one sense say the Word of God is... Is, is valuable, and, and it's, it's inspired, and it's all for us, except for this, this, and this. And so I think that's very important that you, you pay attention to your sources here. So our objective is to go through verse by verse and read through this. I want to start with the key verses of this. And tonight, I know we're setting this up, but the key verses I would pull, these, these are my key verses, what I'm saying you may look at somebody else and they may have a little bit different title or, or something else, and that's fine. That's all good. But, uh, and I don't lift the key verses to say that these are more important than any other part because without the whole, they, these, these lose value. But the first place I would take you is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 24. And, and note the phrase he says here in the King James Version, KJV. For after that in the wisdom of God, everybody say the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called both the Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and say it with me, the wisdom of God. This is what he's talking about. There are some things this world's not going to understand. In fact, if you are not a believer and your faith is not in Christ, you are not going to understand, Paul says, what I'm about to say, everything that I'm about to write. You're not going to get it because this is not after the world's wisdom. This is after man's wisdom. Go with me to chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. He says here, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. Now, he's not talking about we're perfect in the church, but he's talking about we've been perfected by the grace of God, by the power of God. God has righted our wrongs, and we now are able to live overcoming life of sin with the promise of eternal reward. We are the bride of Christ. We speak wisdom among them that are perfect, so when we talk about this among the church, 
This we understand. This is wisdom. Yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak, say it with me, the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They did that. God foretold it, but they did that because of their insistent rebellion against God, and that rebellion caused their blindness to not see what they were doing. And so they marched forward, not even knowing that God said, okay, you think you're doing something bad, but it's actually working out. I'm going to use this to work out for our good. Amen. So we're looking at 1 Corinthians, and we're titling it, The Wisdom of God. Amen. Let's begin. Let's go back to, to, to chapter 1 and verse number 1, and we'll start from here, taking this thing, knowing the two main divisions of the Scripture here, the reproofs, and then those that are instructions uh, that he gives in the last part. The reproofs are chapters 1 through 6. The instructions that he gives, or the answers to questions, are chapters 7 through 16. Let's begin. Verse 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sothenes, I, can't, I can never pronounce it right, our brother. So Paul is the author of this epistle. We know this because this was the custom of that day. You would announce yourself. He's calling himself an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So Paul, everywhere, whenever he writes his epistle, he always qualifies who he is, and one of the issues that they're actually having in the church is rejecting Paul's authority, spiritual authority. And what Paul is doing here is saying, yes, I'm Paul. Yes, I'm an apostle, but I'm done so. This is not about me. This is about me serving as the delegate of God himself through Jesus Christ by the will of God. And so Paul is setting this out to let us, let us know he's not a celebrity, but he is God's delegated authority in the church. That doesn't make Paul special. That points right back to God. God's the one that makes us special. I am the pastor of this church. I am God's delegated authority for this time in this church. But if I misstep, God can remove me in a moment and he'll set somebody else to sit in the area that he wants to serve because it's all about him, it's his kingdom, he's the Lord, he's the Savior, and it's his will be done. Everybody say praise the Lord. So this is what Paul is doing. He's setting himself up. He's not coming in heavy-handed, strong-fisted and say, I can't believe that you don't listen to me. You better listen to me. Do you know who I am? No, he's saying, here I am, I'm coming. And he's not just coming by himself, but he's got others with him. My brother, this is, this is somebody helping him. Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth. Now, pause here. Because this is important to remember later on when you are reading through this very epistle. There will be times where you look at the church at Corinth and say, no. You're a bunch of heathens. You're a bunch of rejects. But Paul didn't come out of the gate saying, 
you messed up, backslidden, perverted people. He says, I'm an apostle writing unto the church of God to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called, everybody say called, called to be saints. Now, too often we limit the context of the call of God to a pastoral or pulpit ministry. Well, I'm not called. Have you ever heard that term? Have you ever said that? You may have even said that. I'm not called. Oh, yes, you are. You are called to be saints. What are saints? Sanctified ones. What does that mean? That means you have been taken out of this world, washed and purified by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are called to be a saint. Every one of you, turn to somebody and tell them, you are called. You are called. You're called. That, is, that, means, that means your calling demands a change in who you are, what you are, how you are. Amen? You're called to be saints, sanctified with all that are in every place, with all that in every place call upon the name of the Lord, uh, of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Okay, so he's saying, you're called to be saints. Now he's setting the stage here. He's just saying hello, but he's setting them up because there's major issues in the church. And so he's letting them know every place when they call upon, what does it mean to call upon the, the, Lord, the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord? When you're calling upon the name, to call upon his name means that you are turning to him as Savior. He is your Lord. He is your Savior. You are not just invoking the name of Jesus because you need God to do a miracle and to help you, but you are calling on him. He's your King. He's your Lord. He's your Savior. Uh, uh, that's, that's what you are confessing when you go into the waters of baptism, that Jesus Christ is your Lord. You are calling on the name of the Lord. So you are saying, I am no longer my own, but I am burying the old man. I am born again new in Christ, and his name is applied to my life. Both theirs, he says, both theirs, he's talking about other people elsewhere, everywhere that call on the name of God, and ours. Now, this is interesting because Paul is saying, I'm a part of you. So this is important. I am a part of you. Grace be unto you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me just pause a moment and say this. This is the kindest way and, 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 and that you can greet one another. And this was a carryover from Judaism, if you will. Shalom, literally meaning peace be upon you kind of thing. I'm coming in peace. It's a greeting of peace. This was a Jewish custom. And now Paul is carrying this into church. Hey, I'm coming. Grace be upon you. What is grace? Well, 
Some say it's the unmerited favor of God upon you. Okay, that's good. But grace is God's willingness to make Himself known in your life through His love, through His mercy, through His works, through His kindness, through His goodness. God is willing. Aren't you thankful for the grace of God? What is grace? Grace is that no matter how bad I am today, tomorrow, God says, I'm giving you a new chance. Because it doesn't matter what you say, how you act, how you live. I want you to know me through the power of my goodness and my love. That's the grace of God. That's the grace of God. So Paul is saying, I pray grace in your life. Grace be upon you and peace be upon you from God our Father. Who is our Father? There's only one God, right? There's only one God. Amen. No man hath seen God at any time. But we are not just standing there wondering when God's going to reveal Himself. He has done so in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not another part of God. He is that very God. The unknowable God made knowable. The unseeable God made seeable. And it pleased God that the fullness of the Godhead dwelleth in him bodily. So what he's not talking about here is he's not greeting them in in two parts of, of some trinity, triune God, because if he's doing that, he is doing a disservice to the third part of the triune God. So that means we got a problem with what Paul's saying. There's not three. There's one God. And that one God, unseeable, unknowable, transcended himself to humanity and said, I will come to you. And he came to us in the form of a servant. God manifest in the flesh. Not another part of God. No, it was that very God. You know why Jesus Christ was crucified? Because he claimed to be that very God. He said it before Abraham was, I am. (gasps) The Jews were taken back. He's claiming to be the very God. That's exactly right. And he said, so that you know that I have power to forgive sins. Sir, that lame, crippled, go ahead, stand up and walk. And he did so immediately in their eyes. So what he's saying is, I'm coming to you. Grace and peace be unto you from God our Father and from Jesus Christ our Lord, from the Lord Jesus Christ. I think we ought to put our hands together and thank God for that. Amen. This was his greeting. Hallelujah. That's just three little verses, but there's a lot in those three little verses that he's given to them. And he's setting them up. And now he's still saying hello. And he does something that we ought to take a cue from. He now moves into verse 4 through 9 into appreciation and thanksgiving for these horrible Christians that he's about to talk to. But it's not... It's not a facade. There is a sincerity here. Think back. Paul gave a year and a half of his life in a place that even he wasn't sure there could be a church. And yet there was an incredible revival. You don't think that Paul is endeared to them? 
And he's already written them one letter that we don't know what happened to it. And so now he writes a second and eventually a third. But we'll call the second the first because it's the first one that we have. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you ye are enriched by Him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. What's he saying here? The, the confirmation of their conversion, the testimony. Paul saying, I know it was confirmed in you. And he's going to testify to those things later on. He's going to let us know some of those things that were happening there. But it was an amazing thing. I'm going to tell you, we are living in 2022 in a secular society with a crazy world. It ought to be evident. The moment somebody walks in these doors, wow, this is a testimony of what God has done. We ought to be able to see visibly. We've got people from every walks of life, but when we come in here, we worship God, we lift up the name of the Lord together, and we magnify God. We ought to praise God for that. Amen. Amen. As revival happens, not everybody in the church is going to look like you. And Paul says, I thank God that the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that ye come behind. Here's he saying, you come behind in no gift. What does he mean by this? Well, he's saying, look, God's testimony was confirmed in you. You are blessed. Later on, he's going to talk about spiritual gifts. You are blessed. You are not wanting in any other gift. You are not the stepchild church, if you will, of the early church. You are not disproportionate in the inheritance of what God has. You are not sitting in a different place. But everything that every other church that God has moved in around the world, he's saying you are not wanting in any gift. We would see later that the, the gifts of the Spirit were in operation there. Now, they were making a mess of them. And, and, and a lot of times, and Paul has to set some things straight, but at least they were blessed. They had the blessing of all of these things that were working here. And Paul is saying, look, as you're doing this, you're not coming behind in any gift. He said, and you are waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you, we have been living for 2,000 years, 2,000 years after this. If you think that we ought not to be waiting for the coming of the Lord today just as fervently as they was back then, then you have missed something. You better be living now as if God could come back any moment, any time, any day. Your life ought to be in a way that God could come at any moment. And I'm going to tell you, if you're paying attention to what's happening in this world, things are happening, God could bring it all together in just a moment and we, we could be taken out of here in a moment. Paul is going to talk about this, but he's admonishing them and he's thanking them. You're waiting for the coming of the Lord. Who shall also confirm you unto the end? Listen, he says it to the Philippians. He said, he that hath begun a good work and you shall perform it. God started something in you. He did not start revival in Corinth. 
for it to be left in a mess. God did not start revival here at CTK for us to go 100 years and then to descend in some kind of chaos. But God has a purpose, and He'll lead us forward, and He'll march us forward onto things. He's going to confirm it unto the end. Somebody say amen. amen. That ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God wants you to be saved. He wants you to live holy. He wants you to live light, right, and He's going to enable you and empower you to do such. And then look at what He says in verse 9. God is faithful by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I know you're messed up. I know I'm getting ready to write this letter. I know you got a lot of trouble. I know other people wouldn't even believe you are saved. Other people don't even want to sit on the side of heaven with you together. He said, but God is faithful. And I'm just glad that you're still here. Turn to somebody and tell them, I'm glad you're still here. Amen. No matter what I think of you, I'm glad you're still here. God is faithful. Amen. Anybody thankful that God is faithful? Come on, somebody. Nobody going to help me. Come on. <laughs> I haven't had it all together, but I'm thankful that God's faithful. And if God's faithful, mm, we ought to be faithful too. Faithful not only to Him, but faithful to one another. Long-suffering towards one another. This is Paul's opening remarks. And in the opening remarks, he has already set up so many things that he's going to be talking about later on. The divisions among the church, that's where we'll pick up next week. The divisions among the church were so incredible. Their immorality among the church, their, their, their uh, lack of discipline, their suing one another in courts, all kinds of things that they had going on in the church. God is faithful. He even talks about them waiting for the coming of the Lord. They were confused about that. And he was saying, God's going to keep you till the end. They were confused about that. He's setting everything up, saying, I'm thankful for you. All of this stuff, God is faithful. Aren't you thankful for the faithfulness of God? Amen, amen, amen. Can we just lift our hands and thank the Lord tonight, God? I thank you tonight for your blessing. I thank you tonight for your Holy Ghost. Thank you for your grace and your peace. I thank you, Lord.